Have you noticed that some people around you seem to be getting older? Not you, of course, but those other folks. And you probably also noticed that some seem to be thriving while others are struggling. And today we'll get some insights as to why and how you can thrive. Welcome to another conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey, and my guest today is Barrett Lewis. She's the author of the new book, Aging Upwards, a mindfulness-based framework for the longevity revolution. She's a sought-after speaker and owner of Thriving Life, which offers workshops, courses, and retreats in mental well-being. As well as being an experienced and accredited mindfulness teacher, she holds a BA with honors in psychology, a master's in science in vitality and aging, and a master's in communication. She's also carried out mindfulness-based vitality and aging research in cooperation with Leiden University Medical Center and Leiden Academy of Vitality and Aging in the Netherlands. Thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure. Thanks for being here. So Barrett, let's start with aging. I love the distinction you make between growing old and getting old. What's the difference in your view? Well, I think aging is just really another word for living. It's just that you're a little bit older when you're doing it. So uh, getting old is, is something we all do, but I think growing old is a choice. And I think that's something that happens when we we keep an, an open mindset that allows us to notice what is happening around us. So that includes both the pleasant and also the unpleasant, which is what we tend to sort of want to run away from and ignore. But if we're able to actually face that and take it all in, I think we learn to adapt from it. And that's what helps us grow. And then we can sort of make the most of the cards we're being dealt without wasting too much time complaining or wishing or wanting things to be how they used to be or in a different way to what they are. That makes a lot of sense. And another point of differentiation that you make in your book, Aging Upwards, is about making the transition from striving to thriving. What are the keys to doing that well? Well, I think the problem is that our, though our brains are really wired for, for striving and, and our social and, and cultural upbringings is also enforcing this very much. So we're wired to strive for comfort and pleasure and our brains and hormonal systems reward us whenever we, for instance, eat sugar or have sex or feel important or, or get recognition for achieving something. And that's all good. Because that helps us from an evolutionary point of view to get our genes into the next gene pool. So we also wired to avoid all the things that's unpleasant. So because it's unpleasant, it's usually associated with dangers, right? So we want to avoid that. At least that's what was important for us when we were cavemen and lived in a, in a less complicated world. So we tend to, to try to run away from things that's unpleasant. And this urge to avoid discomfort and pain. That also includes trying to think our way out of things. So this approach is great if we want to change things. If we're hungry, for instance, we feel the unpleasant feeling of hunger and we try to get rid of it and then we find food. But sometimes there are things that we simply cannot solve, things that cannot be changed. And we cannot solve these through thinking or striving. And sometimes we just have to meet these difficulties with kindness and acceptance because if we don't, we're really creating unnecessary suffering for ourselves because we start to think too much about it. We're blaming, we're self-pitying, we're ruminating, criticizing, and so on. And so I think our way out of unpleasant emotion lies in a different way. And 
that's the difference between striving and thriving because we want to thrive as well as survive when we're on this planet. And, uh, and I think that's the difference. And that's what we can learn to know the difference between what we can change and the things we can't change and approach them in different ways. Another comparison you make is between successful aging, which we've covered on this podcast before, and aging mindfully. What are the four skills you believe people need to cultivate to embrace aging and age mindfully? Yeah, I really think that whole term successful aging is is hugely misleading. So yeah, you talked about this before, yeah, because it's success criteria for what? For to avoid aging, <laughs> to stay young, yeah. And it also really feeds into this whole story we have in our culture about aging being bad and something we should avoid. So aging is not about decline, it's about transition. And so if we want to really use the term successful aging, I think the success criteria should be more how to embrace these transitions according to what each one of us and as individual thinks is important to us. And the four skills that I mention in my book is to be aware of, of this ability to change our mindset, to see things in a different perspective, and to be able to broaden out our awareness so that we can meet all the challenges we see with affection and self-compassion, and then an ability to commit to adapt to actually change things, not through thinking, but through actually doing. So I use the acronyms M, B, R, A, and C, which is in the middle of the word embrace to help me remember this. So M for mindset, B, R for broadening out, A for affection, and C for commitment. And then the E's, that's at either end of, the, of embrace. They're kind of the, seen as a loop, which contains the basic mindfulness skills of noticing and noting and, and knowing what's happening to us because we really need to constantly cultivate these abilities if we are to have the attentional span to see things and to become more aware of our patterns of behavior and thought. Mindfulness is one of those terms that we're all familiar with, but it may mean different things to different people. How do you define mindfulness and what are the main benefits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. if you Google it, there's a million <laughs> definitions that comes up, right? So if I were to say it in just in one word, I would say it's awareness, really. But I also like John Kabat-Zinn's definition. So you probably know that he's the man behind the eight weeks mindfulness-based stress reduction courses. He says that it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So I think it's basically to step out of automatic pilot and see all these patterns of thoughts and behaviors that unconsciously drives us. So I like to actually compare it to, remember the matrix where Neo is asked to take either the red or the blue pill. And I think mindfulness is a bit like choosing the red pill. It's to, to see the truth behind the veil of ignorance in, <laughs> in a way. So most of us like to actually live, we prefer the blue pill because it's not always nice to see the truth behind our beliefs and the way we we have been living our lives. So, but the thing is that once we realize this, we're actually creating more suffering for ourselves. I'm in the book I'm quoting um I was interviewing um the Zen master Tenkai Kopin uh, Rashiwitz is an abbot here in, in the Netherlands. And he's saying that the world is full of suffering and we're trying our best to to create even more of it for ourselves, something like that. Along those lines he's saying And I think that really says is all that there is so much suffering in the world, but 
but we don't have to put it all onto ourselves. Some of that is voluntarily, and it, it's something we can choose not to have. So what are some misconceptions people have about mindfulness? Well, I think the biggest one is that it's a kind of relaxation. So mindful coloring books were a, a big hit, at, and I think still are. And yes, that whole idea about being in the present moment and relaxing, it is a part of mindfulness. It helps us to practice our ability to pay attention to the present moment. And for some people, it also helps them calm down the nervous system. But I think there's so much more to mindfulness than just being present. The true benefit from mindfulness really lies when we start to see, to gain this awareness, as I explained before. So we're not just in the present moment, but we are aware of being in the present moment. There's like this extra layer of it. And I think that is what John Kabat-Zinn uh, refers to when he says being present in a certain way, being aware of being aware, you could even say. So this is when mindfulness does not become a way of distracting ourselves, because I think a lot of people think that by you know listening to a guided meditation or coloring in or something that that's mindfulness, but a lot of people actually use that as a distraction from having to think. And that's not really the point of mindfulness, uh, quite the opposite, actually. So I think the benefit of mindfulness, you have to get this awareness. And that's when the real ability to use challenges as a source of growth and strength, that's where that lies. Most things worth doing take practice and patience, and mindfulness is no exception. What are some of the obstacles that people need to be prepared for if they begin a mindfulness practice? Yeah, it's, unfortunately, mindfulness is not a quick fix. <laughs> I wish it was. It takes a lot of time and effort, and it can also be unpleasant because we're seeing things that we might not want to see. And we are actually, instead of running away from discomfort and pain, we are we're turning towards it and meeting it with, with curiosity. So that's what you have to be prepared for. And that's funny. A lot of people, whenever I teach mindfulness, they come back to me after maybe three weeks and say, I'm supposed to feel less stressed by doing this stress reduction course. But all of a sudden I have more thoughts and they don't really. But I think it's because they notice the thoughts more. They become much more aware of the busyness that we have in our head. And in the beginning, it can actually be a, a source of even more stress. So that's also something that you might want to be prepared for when you go into mindfulness. And it's the beginning, but then eventually you start to see what it all is and, and how you can also cope with it. So it's not easy to learn mindfulness. It, it does take some time. It's like learning any new skill, really. You, when you learn to play the violin or play soccer or whatever, it takes time and you've got to practice it. So, uh, And finally, another thing that's also hard is, is you can't understand mindfulness with your intellect alone. It's not something you can just read a book about and understand. It's really something you have to practice. You have to feel it with your body and your senses and, and trying to let go of this analytical brain that most of us spent most of our time in. But that's difficult too. So here's a question I know I've never asked anyone else before. How do you turn ants into pets? <laughs> yes. So ants is an acronym for automatic negative thoughts. So they stem from these beliefs that we hold about ourselves and the world and it's an inner voice that most of us have, and it's constantly making comments about all the things we experience and all the things we do. And since our brain is hardwired for the negative in order to keep us safe and avoid potential dangers, these negative or these automatic thoughts tend to be negative, so hence the ants. So they consist of beliefs that we picked up as we grew up along the way, 
things we've heard others say about us or the world. And then we simply started to believe them and say them to ourselves consistently. So it can be things like I'm not good enough or I'm weak or nobody likes me or maybe the world is out to get me. All these negative things that we talk, we each have our own favorite one. So, and when we talk about growing old, an ant could be a stereotypical thought like uh, I'm too old to do something or to behave in a certain way. And, and that's really internalized ageism, which I'm sure you've talked a lot about in this podcast before. So. So we tend to think of these thoughts as facts, but they are, they're not facts. And well, they could be, but they rarely are. They're just beliefs that we're living according to. So, but the fact that they are thoughts that come and go, it also means that we have the power to not let them control our lives. So if we start to notice them and we start to, to practice mindfulness, then whenever we do hear them, we can recognize them. and as these behavioral patterns as they are, and then we can respond to them in new ways. So instead of believing them and living according to them, we can acknowledge them as thoughts, like just what are the constructions of the mind. And so when we do hear this inner voice saying an ant, like maybe I'm too old to change my career, we can meet it with something like, hello, my old friend, ant, I hear you often. So, so thank you for keeping me safe or reminding me of potential dangers of pursuing a new career. But this thought is not helping me in my life right now in how I want to live my life and how I want to be. So we can learn to, to see them for what they are and then we can turn them around and we can make them into pets, hence your question. So PET stands for positive enhancing thoughts. So thoughts that instead of stopping us from thriving can help us thrive. And maybe that's something that refers to our values or something that's important to us or something that reminds us who we want to be as people and how we want to live our lives. So in the example I just said before, maybe turning an ant into a pet could be something like, I'm noticing that I'm having the thought that I'm too old to change career, but this thought is just a thought and it's important for my well-being to keep working and engaging in my work. Could be something like that. I noticed in your book that you've gone on many retreats, and my wife does that about twice a year. She convinced me to go once to a silent retreat, and I knew I was in trouble because just a few days before she said, you know, you could practice being silent ahead of time. <laughs> Teasing. And I, I did go, but for those who are listening who haven't been on a retreat but might want to consider that, tell us about your experience with retreats and how can they be beneficial? Yeah, they are challenged, no doubt about that. They are. And I would probably not start with a 10-day silent retreat. That could be a bit, <laughs> bit, a bit of a hardcore start. I think for me personally, I actually really, really enjoyed it. It was awkward because we're so used to needing, feeling we need to make small talk and get to know each other. But after a little while, when you realize that everybody else is silent, you actually see it as a kind of a a relief that you don't have to think about how you are, you make conversation and you can sort of tune in and which is really the whole purpose of it to become aware of your own thoughts and your own well even that that discomfort of of engaging of not engaging with other people through your talk and speak it really enlightens you because you're stepping out of automatic pilot and you're seeing and you're thinking and you're reflecting a lot about how who you are and how you work in real life and then 
often on silent retreats, you also do a lot of meditations and you can really cultivate a lot of concentration if you really tune inwards and notice everything. So I did a, a Vipassana, which is a 10-day Buddhist retreat. And what you do there is you, you have to note and notice and even label everything you do. So like from the instant you feel this urge to drink something, if you feel thirst, you like noticing thirst, looking around for a glass, reaching out. And it's really tedious and it's really a marathon for the mind. But you start to understand how the mind works deep, deep, deep down. And uh, it can be very enlightening because you come out of there and you have seen the things that drives you on a deeper level. And then you can make a choice to respond in a different way. So uh, I think if you learn mindfulness, I think you can learn it by doing a course and do it in everyday life. But I really think it boosts your insights and your ability to practice mindfulness in everyday life if you go on a retreat, because you are really taking yourself out of everyday life and you can just concentrate on that. Yeah. Mine was a two-day retreat, not 10. I'd have to build up to 10, but I appreciate that. Great explanation of why people should consider that yeah. at a certain point. The other thing I noticed in your book is you talked a lot about shifting from doing to being and how to get the right balance. Any thoughts on doing versus being? Yeah, I think in our world, we tend to do too much doing. We're always constantly, back to what I said earlier about us being wired to constantly strive. And so we're always wanting to achieve. And it's almost like we're only worth something if we're achieving and if we're doing something. And that's why it's so hard to practice mindfulness because we're doing the opposite to what we, from an evolutionary point of view, is wired to do, and also what the world tells us to do. Like, you've got to do, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And that's also why there's so much burnout in our culture, because we cannot, and we simply cannot cope with that. We need that our stress response system is set up in a way to be helping us when we're stressed. But then the intention is really to go down to being. It's from, if we, when we were cavemen, you were out there and you hear rustling in the buses, bushes and you, you think you're being attacked by something and then you get into a stress response and then it's gone, the danger, and you go home in front of the fire and you sit with your family and friends and you talk about it and you relax. So you, you have this balance and then you're ready again to go out. But because we have since then got this prefrontal cortex that's able to imagine danger all the time, even when we think we are relaxing, like when we're relaxing in front of Netflix or something like that, our brain is still going. We're still doing, even though we might think we are just being, but our mind and our, like our bodies cannot see the difference between imagined danger and real danger. So it's constantly on alert. And that's why I think it's so important for us to take time out to really be and just not think, not do. And that's difficult. So I'm sure many people listening are now thinking, hmm, this mindfulness thing has been on my list for a while. I'd like to start. What's your advice for people listening on how they could start to work on mindfulness? If you're serious about learning mindfulness, I think I would join a course because it is such a, a thing that's hard to do. And it's, it's really hard to just say, okay, I'm going to sit down and start to listen to these guided meditations because there's always going to be something that comes up and say, no, no, maybe this is not for me. And I should probably go and finish that report or I should go out and do the washing or whatever that comes up. Our minds will always come up with things that's more important in the moment and to sit and do nothing. So 
to really do it, I think uh, doing like maybe one of those uh, eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction courses, MBSR courses, would be a good way to go because to have a group of people that you are learning together with really gives you so much support. And you also have a qualified teacher that you can ask questions to. Is this normal? Is this this is really difficult for me and can help you with, if you get into trouble? So I, that's really what I would advise to to do a course in one way or another. It's hard to do alone. Of course, some people can do it on their own, and and that's great too. And even if it, this is not the time for you, maybe you don't have the time to because it is kind of a a big thing to go ahead and do a eight weeks because you are required to practice in between the classes and so on. So it is a it's a big commitment. But I think you can also start to listen to like there's a a lot of free apps out there that helps you guide meditations. And that will help you to relax, as I said before. But I I think you need to, if you really want to gain the full benefit of mindfulness, you need to get to that awareness bit. And I think that's hard to do on your own. Yeah. Great advice. And thank you so much for sharing all of your insights here today with us. Pleasure. I'm so happy that I can help. Great. Thank you. Now it's time to jot down a few takeaways that you can apply after this conversation. Here are a few ideas to consider. Number one, choose to grow old, not just get old. Let's face it, most people are, will get old if they're lucky, but you can make a different choice. You can be a more active participant. You can choose to grow old. We don't stop growing just because we retire. As Barrett mentioned, aging is not really just about decline. It's also about the transitions. So embrace the transition. Continue your personal growth and development. Number two, embrace mindfulness and learn how to step away from that automatic pilot mode from time to time. Here's a reason why that's particularly important in retirement that you may not have considered. And that's the fact that most people spend much more time alone than they expect as they get older and as they retire. In the U.S., the American Time Use Survey found that people at age 40 spent an average of 278 minutes a day alone. At 60, it's 413. 65, 444. And 72, 474. So mindfulness can help you notice what's really happening and get much more of your day-to-day experience. As Barrett mentioned, it's not a quick fix. It takes practice and patience. So it's a good idea to consider starting a mindfulness practice now. And I think our idea of taking a course is a good one. Number three, turn ants into pets. And this is for a similar reason. If you're going to be spending more time alone with your thoughts, this can be very valuable. Learn just how to really notice those automatic negative thoughts and how to pivot them into positive thoughts. Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. We are here to help you retire smarter by balancing your planning to include the non-financial parts of retirement. You can find all of our episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com. There are six seasons. I like to think of it as a free retirement school. Thanks for listening.